Meet the One for All card. Perfect for Aunt Edith, your dog walker, and even what's-his-name. With over 100 great brands and no fees, it's the one gift for all. Available in stores and at giftcards.com. Bedtime Stories on 1707 Radio. listening to Bedtime Stories on 1707 Radio with your reader, Anna Mercer. Our book is Mortal Engines by Philip Reeve. The story so far. Our protagonist is Tom Natsworthy, a 15-year-old apprentice historian living aboard the Traction City of London, centuries in the future. London and other cities rove the hunting ground, searching for small towns to eat. Tom and a mysterious assassin, Hester, have been dropped out of the bottom of London and now they have to fend for themselves on the wasted surface of the earth. Chapter 6. Speedwell All that day they struggled onwards, trudging along in the scar that London had clawed through the soft earth of the hunting ground. The city was never out of their sight, but it grew smaller and smaller, more and more distant, pulling away from them towards the east, and Tom realised that it might soon be lost forever beyond the horizon. Loneliness wrenched at him. He had never much enjoyed his life as an apprentice historian third class, but now his years in the museum felt like a beautiful golden dream. He found himself missing fussy old Dr Arkengarth and pompous Chudley Pomeroy. He missed his bunk in the draughty dormitory and the long hours of work, and he missed Catherine Valentine, although he had known her for only a few minutes. Sometimes, if he closed his eyes, he could see her face quite clearly, her kind grey eyes and her lovely smile. He was sure that she didn't know what sort of man her father was. Watch where you're going, snapped Hester Shaw, and he opened his eyes and realised that he had almost led her over the brink of one of the gaping track marks. On and on they went, and on, and Tom started to think that what he missed most about his city was the food. It had never been up to much, the stuff they served in the Guild Canteen, but it was better than nothing, and nothing was what he had now. When he asked Hester Shaw what they were supposed to live on out here, she just said, I bet you wish you hadn't lost my pack for me now, London boy. I had some good dried dog meat in my pack. In the early afternoon, they came across a few dull, greyish bushes that London's tracks had not quite buried, and Hester tore some leaves off and mashed them to a pulp between two stones. They'd be better cooked, she said, as they ate the horrid vegetable goo. I had the makings of a fire in my pack. Later, she caught a frog in one of the deep pools that were already forming in the chevroned track prints. She didn't offer Tom any, and he tried not to watch while she ate it. He still did not know what to make of her. She was silent mostly, and glared so fiercely at him when he tried to talk to her that he quickly learned to walk in silence too but sometimes, quite suddenly, she would start talking. The land's rising, she might say. That means London will go slower. It would waste fuel going full speed on an uphill stretch. Then, an hour or two later, my mum used to say traction cities are stupid. She said there was a reason for them a thousand years ago when there were all those earthquakes and volcanoes and the glaciers pushing south. Now they just keep rolling around and eating each other because people are too stupid to stop them. Tom liked it when she talked, even though he did think her mum sounded like a dangerous anti-tractionist. But when he tried to keep the conversation going, she would go quiet again, and her hand would go up to hide her face. 
it was as if there were two Hesters sharing the same thin body. One, a grim Avenger who thought only of killing Valentine. The other, a quick, clever, likeable girl whom he sometimes sensed peeking out at him from behind that scarred mask. He wondered if she was slightly mad. It would be enough to send anyone mad seeing your parents murdered. How did it happen? He asked her gently. I mean, your mum and dad? Are you sure it was Valentine who... Shut up and walk, she said. But long after dark, as they huddled in a hollow of the mud to escape the chill night wind, she suddenly started telling him her story. I was born on the bare earth, she said, but it wasn't like this. I lived on Oak Island in the far west. It used to be a part of the hunting ground once, but the earthquakes drowned all the land around and made an island of it, too far offshore for any hungry city to attack and too rocky for the amphibious towns to get at. It was lovely. Green hills and great outcrops of stone and the streams running through tangly oak woods, all grey with lichen, the trees shaggy with it like old dogs. Tom shuddered. Every Londoner knew that the only savages lived on the bare earth. I prefer a nice firm deck plate under me, he said. But Hester didn't seem to hear him. The words kept spilling out of her twisted mouth as if she had no choice in the matter. There was a town there called Dunroman. It was mobile once, but the people got sick of running all the time from bigger towns, so they floated it across to Oak Island and took its wheels and engines off and dug it into a hillside. It's been sitting there a hundred years or more, and you'd never know it used to move at all. But that's awful, Tom gasped. It's downright anti-tractionist. My mum and dad lived down the road away, she went on talking straight over him. They had a house on the edge of the moor where the sea comes in. Dad was a farmer and Mum was a historian like you, only a lot cleverer than you, of course. She flew off each summer in her airship, digging for old tech, but in the autumn she'd come home. I used to go up to her study in the attic on winter's nights and eat cheese on toast and she'd tell me about her adventures. And then one night, seven years ago, I woke up late and there were voices up in the attic arguing. So I went up the ladder and looked and Valentine was there. I knew him because he was Mum's friend and used to drop in on us when he was passing. Only he wasn't being very friendly that night. Give me the machine, Pandora, he kept saying. Give me Medusa. He didn't see me watching him. I was at the top of the ladder looking into the attic, too scared to go up and too scared to go back. Valentine had his back to me. And Mum was stood facing him, holding this machine, and she said, Damn you, Thaddeus, I found it, it's mine. And then Valentine drew his sword and he... And he... She paused for breath. She wanted to stop, but she was riding a wave of memory and it was carrying her backwards to that night, that room, and the blood that had spattered her mother's star charts like the map of a new constellation. And then he turned round and saw me watching, and he came at me... And I dived back so his sword only cut my face and I fell back down the ladder. He must have thought he'd killed me. I heard him go to Mum's desk and start rushing through the papers there and I got up and ran. Dad was lying on the kitchen floor. He was dead too. Even the dogs were dead. I ran out of the house and saw Valentine's great black ship moored at the end of the garden with his men waiting. They came after me but I escaped. I ran down to the boathouse and shoved off in Dad's skiff. I think I meant to go round to Dunroman and get help. I was only little and I thought a doctor could help mum and dad. But I was so weak with the pain and all the blood. 
I untied the boat somehow and the current swept it out and the next thing I knew I was waking up on the shores of the hunting ground. I lived in the outcountry after that. At first I didn't remember much. It was as if when he cut my head open some of my memories spilled out and the rest got muddled about. But slowly I started remembering and one day I remembered Valentine and what he'd done. That's when I decided to come and find him, kill him, the same way he killed my mum and dad. What was this machine? asked Tom in the long silence. This Medusa thing? Hester shrugged. It was too dark to see her by this time, but he heard her shrug, the hunch of her shoulders inside her filthy coat. Something my mum found, old tech. It didn't look important like a metal football, all bashed and dented. But that's what he killed her for. Seven years ago, whispered Tom. That's when Mr Valentine got made head of the guild. They said he'd found something in the outcountry and Croom was so pleased that he promoted him straight over the heads of Treadley Pomeroy and all the rest. But I never heard what it was he'd found and I never heard of a Medusa before. Hester said nothing at all. After a few minutes, she began to snore. Tom sat awake for a long time, turning her story over and over in his mind. He thought of the daydreams that had kept him going through long, tedious days in the museum. He had dreamed of being trapped in the outcountry with a beautiful girl on the trail of some murderous criminal, but he had never imagined it would be so wet and cold, or that his eggs, legs would ache so, or that the murderer would be London's greatest hero. And as for the beautiful girl, he looked at the blunt wreck of Hester Shaw's face in the faint moonlight, scowling even in her sleep. He understood her better now. She hated Valentine, but she hated herself even more for being so ugly and for being still alive when her parents were dead. He remembered how he had felt when the big tilt happened and he came home and found his house flattened and mum and dad gone. He had thought that it was all his fault somehow. He had felt full of guilt because he had not been there to die with them. I must help her, he thought. I won't let her kill Mr Valentine, but I'll find a way to get the truth out. If it is the truth. Maybe tomorrow London will have slowed down a bit and Hester's leg will be better. We'll be back in the city by sundown and somebody will listen to us. But by next morning they woke to find that the city was even further ahead and Hester's leg was worse. She moaned with pain at almost every step now. Her face was the colour of old snow, and fresh blood was soaking through her bandages and running down into her boot. Tom cursed himself for throwing those rags of shirt away, and for making Hester lose her pack and her first aid kit. In the middle of the morning, through shifting veils of rain, they saw something ahead of them. A pile of slag and clinker lay spilled across the track marks where London had vented it the day before. Drawn up beside it was a strange little town and as they got closer, Hester and Tom could see that people were scrambling up and down the spoil heap, sifting out collops of melted metal and fragments of unburnt fuel. The sight gave them hope and they pressed forward faster. By early afternoon they were walking under the shadow of the townlet's huge wheels and Tom was staring up in amazement at its single tier. It was smaller than a lot of the houses in London, and it appeared to have been built out of wood by somebody whose idea of good carpentry was to bang a couple of nails in and hope for the best. 
Behind the shed-like town hall rose the huge, crooked chimneys of an experimental engine away. "'Welcome!' shouted a tall, white-bearded man, picking his way down the clinker heap, grubby brown robes flapping. "'Welcome to Speedwell. I am Orm Rayland, Mayor. Do you speak English?' Hester hung back suspiciously, but Tom thought the old man looked friendly enough. He stepped forward and said, "'Please, sir, we need some food and a doctor to look at my friend's leg.' "'I'm not your friend,' hissed Hester Shaw, "'and there's nothing wrong with my leg.' But she was white and trembling, and her face shone with sweat. "'No doctor in Speedwell, anyway,' laughed Rayland. "'Not one. And as for food... "'Well, times are hard. Do you have anything you can trade?' Tom patted the pockets of his tunic. He had a little money, but he didn't see what use London money would be to Orm Rayland. Then he touched something hard. It was the CD he had found in the gut. He pulled it out and looked wistfully at it for a moment before he handed it to the old man. He had been planning to make a present of it to Catherine Valentine one day, but now food was more important. Pretty, very pretty, admitted Orm Rayland, tilting the disc and admiring the rippling rainbows. Not a lot of use, but worth a few nights shelter and a bit of food. It's not very good food, mine, but it's better than nothing. He was right. It wasn't very good, but Tom and Hester ate greedily anyway and then held out their bowls for more. It's made from algae, mostly, explained Orm Rayland as his wife slopped out second helpings of the bluish muck. We grow it in vats down under the main engine room. Nasty stuff, but it keeps body and soul together when pickings is thin, and between you and me, pickings has never been thinner. That's why we were so glad to come across this mound of trash we're scraping through. Tom nodded, leaning back in his chair and looking around the Raylands' quarters. It was a tiny, cheese-shaped room, and not at all what he would have expected of a mayoral residence, but then Orm Rayland was not exactly what he would have expected of a mayor. The shabby old man seemed to rule over a town composed mainly of his own family, sons and daughters, grandchildren, nieces and nephews, and the husbands and wives that they had met on passing towns. But Rayland was not a happy man. It's no fun running a traction town, he kept saying. Nope, no fun at all, not any more. There was a time when a little place like Speedwell could go about its business quite safely, being too small for any other town to bother eating. But not now, not with prey so scarce. Everyone we see wants to eat us. We even found ourselves running from a city the other day. One of those big Frankish-speaking ville mobile it was. I ask you, what good would a place like Speedwell be to a monster like that? We'd barely take the edge off its appetite, but they chased us anyway. Your town must be very fast, said Tom. Oh yes, agreed Rayland, beaming, and his wife put in. Hundred miles an hour, top speed. That's Rayland's doing. He's a wizard with those big engines of his. Could you help us? asked Tom, leaning forward in his seat. We need to get to London as quickly as possible. I'm sure you could catch it up, and there might be more spoil heaps along the way. Bless you, lad, said Rayland, shaking his head. What London drops isn't worth going far for, not these days. Everything's recycled now that prey's so short. Why, I remember the days when cities' waste heaps used to dot the hunting ground like mountains. Oh, there was good pickings then, but not any more. Besides, he added with a shudder, I wouldn't take my town too close to London or any other city. You can't trust them these days. They'd turn round and snaffle us like as not. Chump! No, no. Tom nodded, 
trying not to show his disappointment. He glanced across at Hester, but her head was hanging down and she seemed to be asleep or unconscious. He hoped it was just the effects of her long walk and her full stomach, but as he started up to check that she was all right, Rayland said, "'I tell you what, though, lad, we'll take you to the cluster.' "'To the what?' "'To the trading cluster. It's a gathering of small towns a couple of days run southeast of here. We were going anyway.' "'There'll be lots of towns at the cluster,' Mrs Rayland agreed, "'and even if none of them is prepared to take you and your friend to London, "'you'll soon find an air trader who will. "'Bound to be air traders at a cluster.' "'I,' said Tom, and stopped. "'He wasn't feeling very well. "'The room seemed to waver, then started to roll, "'like the picture on a badly tuned goggle screen. "'He looked at Hester and saw that she had slipped off her seat onto the floor.' The Raylands' household gods grinned at him from their shrine on the wall, and one of them seemed to be saying in Orm Rayland's voice, "'Sure to be airships there, Tom. Always airships at a trading cluster.' "'Would you like some more algae, dear?' inquired Mrs Rayland as he fell to his knees. From a long, long way away he heard her saying, it "'Took an awfully long time to take effect, didn't it, Ormy?' And Rayland replying, "'We'll have to put more in next time, my sweet.' Then the swirling patterns on the carpet reached up and twined around him and pulled him down into a sleep that was as soft as cotton wool and filled with dreams of Catherine. Chapter 7. High London Above Tier 1, above the busy shops of Mayfair and Piccadilly, above Quirk Circus, where the statue of London's saviour stands proudly on its fluted steel column, top tier hangs over the city like an iron crown, supported by vast pillars. It is the smallest, highest and most important of the seven tiers, and though only three buildings stand there, they are the three greatest buildings in London. To Sternwood rise the towers of the Guild Hall, where the greater and lesser guilds all have their offices and meet in council once a month. Opposite it is the building where the real decisions are taken, the black glass claw of the Engineerium. Between them stands St Paul's, the ancient Christian temple that Quirk re-erected up here when he turned London into Attraction City. It is a sad sight now, covered in scaffolding and shored up with props, for it was never meant to move, and London's journeys have shaken the old stonework terribly. But soon it will be open to the public again. The Guild of Engineers has promised to restore it, and if you listen closely, you can hear the drills and hammers of their men at work inside. Magnus Croom hears them as his bug goes purring through the old cathedral's shadow to the engineerium. They make him smile, a faint, secret smile. Inside the engineerium, the sunlight is kept at bay behind black windows. A cold neon glow washes the metal walls and the air smells of antiseptic, which Croom thinks is a welcome relief from the stench of flowers and new-mown grass that hangs over High London on this warm spring day. A young apprentice leaps to attention as he stalks into the lobby and bows her bald head when he barks, Take me to Dr Twix! A monorail car is waiting. The apprentice helps the Lord Mayor into it and it takes him sweeping up in a slow spiral through the heart of the engineerium. He passes floor after floor of offices and conference rooms and laboratories and glimpses the shapes of strange machines through walls of frosted glass. Everywhere he looks, he sees his engineers at work, tinkering with fragments of old tech, performing experiments on rats and dogs, 
or guiding groups of shaven-headed children who are up from a day trip from the guild's nurseries in the deep gut. He feels safe and satisfied here in the clean, bright, inner sanctum of his guild. It makes him remember why he loves London so much and why he has devoted his whole career to finding ways to keep it moving. When Croom was a young apprentice many years ago, he read gloomy forecasts which said that prey was running out and traction cities were doomed. He has made it his life's work to prove them wrong. Clawing his way to the top of his guild and then onto the Lord Mayor's throne was just the start. His fierce recycling and anti-waste laws were merely a stopgap. Now he is almost ready to unveil his real plan. But first he must be certain that the Shaw girl can make no more trouble. The car comes sighing to a halt outside one of the upper laboratories. A squat, white-coated barrel of a woman stands waiting at the entrance, hopping nervously from foot to foot. Evadne Twix is one of the best engineers in London. She may look like someone's dotty auntie and decorate her laboratory with pictures of flowers and puppies, a clear breach of guild rules, but when it comes to her work, she is utterly ruthless. Hello, Lord Mayor, she simpers, bowing. How lovely to see you. Have you come to visit my babies? I want to see Shrike, he snaps, brushing past, and she dances along in his wake like a leaf in the slipstream of a passing city. Through her laboratory they go, past startled, bowing engineers, past glittering racks of glassware, and past tables where rusting metal skeletons are being painstakingly repaired. Dr Twix's team has spent years studying the stalkers, the resurrected men whose remains turn up sometimes in the outcountry, and lately they have had more than just remains to work on. You have completed your researches on Shrike? asks Croom as he strides along. You are certain he is of no further use to us? Oh, I've learned everything we can, Lord Mayor, twitters the doctor. He's a fascinating piece of work, but really far more complicated than is good for him. He has almost developed his own personality. And as for his strange fixation with this girl, I shall make sure that my new models are much simpler. Do you wish me to have him dismantled? No. Croom stops at a small round door and touches a stud that sends it whirling open. I intend to keep my promise to Shrike, and I have a job for him. Beyond the door hang shadows and a smell of oil. A tall shape stands motionless against a far wall. As the Lord Mayor steps into the room, two round green eyes snap on like headlights. Mr Shrike, says Croom, sounding almost cheery. How are we today? I hope you were not asleep. I do not sleep, replies a voice from the darkness. It is a horrible voice, sharp as the squeal of rusty cogs. Even Dr Twix, who knows it well, shudders inside her rubber coat. Do you wish to examine me again? No, Shrike, Croom says. Do you remember what you warned me of when you first came to me a year and a half ago? About the shore girl? I told you that she is alive and on her way to London. Well, it seems you were right. She turned up just as you said she would. Where is she? Bring her to me. Impossible, I'm afraid. She jumped down a waste chute, back out into the out country. There is a slow hiss, like steam escaping. I must go after her. 
Croom smiles. I was hoping you'd say that. One of my guild's Goshawk 90 reconnaissance airships has been made ready for you. The pilots will retrace the city's tracks until you find where the girl fell. If she and her companion are dead, all well and good. If they are alive, kill them. Bring their bodies to me. And then, asks the voice. And then, Shrike, Kroom replies, I will give you your heart's desire. It was a strange time for London. The city was still travelling at quite high speed as if there was a catch in sight, but there was no other town to be seen on the grey, muddy plains of the northwestern hunting ground, and everybody was wondering what the Lord Mayor could be planning. We can't just go on driving like this, Catherine heard one of her servants mutter. There are big cities further east and they'll scoff us up and spit out the bones. But Mrs Mallow, the housekeeper, whispered back, don't you know nothing, Suki Blinder? Ain't Mr Valentine himself been sent off on a expedition to spy out the land head? Him and Magnus Croom have got their eye on some vast great prize, you can be sure of it. Some vast great prize, perhaps, but nobody knew what. And when Valentine came home at lunchtime from another meeting with the Guild of Engineers, Catherine asked him, Why do they have to send you off on a reconnaissance flight? That's a job for a navigator, not the best archaeologist in the world. It's not fair. Valentine sighed patiently. The Lord Mayor trusts me, Kate, and I will soon be back. Three weeks, a month, no more. Now come down to the hangar with me, and we'll see what Pusey and Gensch have been doing to that airship of mine. In the long millennia since the Sixty-Minute War, airship technology had reached levels that even the ancients had never dreamed of. Valentine had had the 13th floor elevator specially constructed, using some of the money that Croom had paid him for the old tech he found on his trip to America 20 years before. He said she was the finest airship ever built, and Catherine saw no reason to doubt him. Of course, he didn't keep her down at the Tier 5 air harbour with the common merchantman, but at a private air quay a few hundred yards from Cleo House. Catherine and her father walked towards it through the sunlit park. The hangar and the metal apron in front of it were busy with people and bugs as Pusey and Gensch set about loading the elevator with provisions for the coming flight. Dog went hurrying ahead to sniff at the stacks of crates and drums, tinned meat, lifting gas, medicines, airship puncture repair kits, sun lotion, gas masks, flame-proof suits, guns, rain capes, cold-weather coats, map-making equipment, portable stoves, spare socks, plastic cups, three inflatable dinghies and a carton labelled Pink's Patent Outcountry Mud Shoes. Nobody sinks with pinks. In the shadows of the hangar, the great airship waited, her sleek, black, armoured envelope screened by tarpaulins. As usual, Catherine felt a rising thrill at the thought of that huge vessel lifting farther up into the sky, and a sadness, too, that he was leaving her, and a fear that he might not return. Oh, I wish I could go with you, she said. Not this time, Kate, her father told her. One day, perhaps. Is it because I'm a girl, she asked. But that doesn't matter. I mean, in ancient times, women were allowed to do the same things men did. And anyway, the air trade is full of women pilots. You had one yourself on the American trip. I remember seeing pictures of her. It's not that, Kate, he said, hugging her. It's just that it may be dangerous. Anyway... I don't want you to start turning into an old ragamuffin adventurer like me. 
I want you to stay here and finish school and become a fine, beautiful High London lady. And most of all, I want you to stop Dog from peeing all over my crates of soup. When Dog had been dragged away and scolded, they sat down together in the shadow of the hangar, and Catherine said, So will you tell me where you're going, then, that's so important and dangerous? I'm not supposed to say, said Valentine, glancing down at her out of the corner of his eye. Oh, come on, she laughed. We're best friends, aren't we? You know I'd never tell anybody else. I'm desperate to know where London is going to. Everyone at school keeps asking. We've been travelling east at top speed for days and days. We didn't even stop when we ate salt hook. Well, Kate, he admitted, the fact is, Croom has asked me to take a look into Shangguo. Shangguo was the leading nation of the Anti-Traction Alliance, the Barbarian League which controlled the old Indian subcontinent and what was left of China, protected from hungry cities by a great chain of mountains and swamps that marked the eastern limits of the hunting ground. Catherine had studied it in geography. There was only one pass through those mountains and it was protected by the dreadful fortress city of Batmunk Gompa, the shield wall, beneath whose guns a hundred cities had come to grief in the first few centuries of traction. But why there? she asked. London can't be going there. I didn't say it was, replied Valentine, but one day we may have to go to Shanguo and breach the League's defences. You know how short prey has become. Cities are starting to starve and turn on one another. Catherine shivered. But there must be some other solution, she protested. Can't we talk to the Lord Mayors of other cities and work something out? He laughed gently. I'm afraid municipal Darwinism doesn't work like that, Kate. It's a town-eat-town world. But you mustn't worry. Croom is a great man and he will find a way. She nodded unhappily. Her father's eyes had that haunted, hunted look again. He had still not confided in her about the girl assassin, and now she could tell that he was keeping something else from her, something about this expedition and the Lord Mayor's plans for London. Was it all connected somehow? She could not ask him directly about the things she had overheard in the atrium without admitting that she had spied on him. But just to see what he would say, she asked, Does this have something to do with that awful girl? Was she from Shanguo? No, said Valentine quickly, and she saw the colour drain from his face. She is dead, Kate, and there's no reason to worry about her any more. Come on. He stood up quickly. We have a few days more together before I set off, so let's make the most of them. We'll sit by the fire and eat buttered toast and talk about old times and not think about, about that poor disfigured girl. As they walked back hand in hand across the park, a shadow slid over them. A goshawk ninety, departing from the, from the engineerium. You see, said Catherine, the Guild of Engineers has airships of its own. I think it's horrid of Magnus Croom sending you away from me. But her father just shaded his eyes to watch as the white airship circled top tier and flew quickly towards the west. And that's the end of this episode of Bedtime Stories and 1707 Radio. Tune in next time for Chapter 8, The Trading Cluster. Bedtime Stories on 1707 Radio.
Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner.